0: Land use patterns have developed around the system, and it's suddenly at threat in a serious way.
1: Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. I'm Justin Marlowe, and we are, of course, proudly sponsored, as always, by the Government Finance Officers Association, Munipro Build America Mutual and Odyssey Advisors. And we're back after a brief but uh, well-received summer hiatus. Joined as always following that hiatus by my co-host, fiscal policy wonk, chicken connoisseur, baseball fan, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back
2: thanks justin great to be back um some just highlights of the last last month since we've talked uh my son's baseball team somehow uh made it into their their the championship game for, for their division in the league uh which was which was wonderful uh they they came in as runners-up but it was all basically gravy after they won their first playoff game i mean it was it was it was a true truly fun to to watch um and the other bit of development is that uh we have impulsed bought chickens again <laughs> uh, so we we lost a couple over the last year um and so we bought two more my son paid for them cuz they are officially his chickens and he named them one of them is named Twizzler after his favorite candy and uh <laughs> And then the in, in like a completely opposite direction, he looked up the Latin word for brave, which is fortum, for anyone who's wondering. And so that's what the other bird's name is. Its name is Fortum, which I shortened to forty. So that's that's what I do. But <laughs> I can't I can't say full names. <laughs> but uh yeah, so that's they are they are growing up right now. They we haven't moved them into the to the big pen yet, the big penthouse. <laughs>
1: so many interesting insights into the uh, farbert art household there that's uh, <laughs> that's that's exciting
2: I, you know well, congratulations
1: oh. <laughs> to them for uh, for all their success on the diamond and i at this point is it still an impulse buy if mean, you you're seasoned <laughs> chicken farmers at this point
2: yeah i mean you, you, probably not at some point you know you can go to the hardware store and expect to come back with chickens every you know nine or 10 times you go
1: <laughs> yes well, that's wonderful. Yeah. Exciting times here too. We're recording this, the, the day before, you know, independence, they actually had uh, NASCAR in Chicago this last weekend, which made for a very, very interesting, uh, set of, of observations from a public finance perspective in particular, we've talked many times on this podcast about the resurgence of downtowns, where lodging taxes are going to come from, the infrastructure demands on on bringing tourists back downtown, et cetera, et cetera, and they somehow pulled off a, a, a full on NASCAR race on city streets in Chicago this weekend. It was it was That's quite insane. a scene, and we'll have to wow. look to see what the economic impact numbers look like once they come in. But it was um, there are a lot of skeptics, and I think there probably still are, but just the feat of of putting a NASCAR race downtown right around Grant Park was. I think everybody agrees was was quite a thing, just in and of itself to observe.
2: For sure, I'll have to go look up pictures online now. So all
1: good things, uh, interesting, interesting ways to spend a brief summer back, or a brief summer break, I should say. But we are back with season two of the Public Money Pod. Lots of great guests in store for you. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to our sponsors, and uh, look forward to bringing you all kinds of of great conversations here over the next weeks and months, starting with. Uh, As I started to say earlier, it is completely appropriate because it is the day before Independence Day that we are talking to Glenn Lee, who is the Chief Finance Officer for the District of Columbia, our nation's capital. So nice to be able to talk to the CFO of our nation's capital right before Independence Day. And Liz, you know, we've had several of these conversations with CFOs of uh, cities and and states and and treasurers and controllers and others in similar roles. we'll continue to have those discussions. DC is a little bit unique uh, in part the way it's structured, the way that its fiscal oversight works. Uh, But it's also a little bit unique in that we've sort of both had some relevant experiences there and can reflect on that a little bit in thinking about the conversation with Glenn, Uh, You know the district well, you've covered its finances for a long time. What comes to mind when you think about important considerations for the chief finance officer for the district?
2: Yeah, sure. I think one of the first things uh, that I learned um, or was was meant to learn about DC's history when I first became a, a local reporter there. Was uh, the the local control aspect of the city? Um, it has obviously been around since 1790, but it has not had a local government for the majority of that time. Uh, not until the 1970s uh, was it given given home rule, um, and and even it, it had a mayor it had a council, um, but it didn't really it wasn't really allowed to govern itself until 1973. Uh, which isn't that long ago. Uh, and and even then, D.C. is really, really restricted in in ways that no other city is because it's got Congress there. And Congress actually for a long time had to approve D.C.'s budget. It, the city, it still does, but the city got it changed so that it's, it's now a tacit approval. So unless Congress says no to something, like D.C.'s budget is good, but D.C.'s budget has always been subject to a body of legislators who don't live in the city. Um, and that's kind of been the case, like that is sort of the 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 crux of DC's and the, the vein of its existence to people uh, who, who try to govern a city is that they have to work with several hundred people um, and particularly one house committee, um, full, of, full of people who don't have a, a personal stake in the city. And, and sometimes as as we saw uh earlier this year, when some local officials had to testify before Congress uh, for d c s crime bill um sometimes those those officials who don't have a stake in the city can still dictate uh how the city should govern itself, and so that is uh that is, and and all of that ties back to to the city how the city's allowed to spend its money, and so it's it's such a weird, unique. Um, kind of fascinating situation.
1: Definitely. And I think despite all of that too, it's often held up as really a model of how that what we might call maybe more heavy handed or, uh, financial control structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what can happen when it works really, really well. I mean, I, I remember, uh, living in DC 25 years ago now, just as some of the major fiscal problems that it was having were were really starting to to take root and you could see the effects of it. I mean, you could literally see it on the on the street, along came uh, somebody that we both know pretty well, Nat Gandhi, who served as <laughs> as the CFO of the district for a long time. And they really put that oversight structure to to work on behalf of taxpayers in, in the district, you know, on behalf of of the residents of the district. And Now, as we look at other fiscally distressed uh, jurisdictions, certainly Detroit comes to mind and there's lots of discussions about lots of other cities that may find themselves either in bankruptcy or needing some sort of more direct state or even federal oversight. Uh, You can point to that DC model as certainly having some disadvantages, but also having used its unique uh, statutory and and legal uh, degrees of freedom, we might say, to you know, really great effect and to really stabilize a financial situation that was pretty unstable, uh, at the time. So as, as unique as it is, it's also still kind of a unique success story as well.
2: Yeah. It's funny it, 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 Congress, it, it really is a double-edged sword for the city because Congress can yank out the, the, the rug from underneath you. But it has been there like that, that financial control board that Congress established, uh, in the nineties when it took over city finances to a large degree is. Plays a big role into why DC is so financially stable, why the CFO has such authority. Um, all of these like best practice uh, type things is kind of is root is in part because of that. That's right,
1: but of course it requires Congress to wield that power responsibly, which has sometimes <laughs> been the case and sometimes not been the case. <laughs> Well, today we're continuing our conversations with state and city CFOs and we're fortunate to have at our latest installment of those discussions, the chief finance officer for the district of Columbia, Glenn Lee. Glenn, welcome to the public money pod. Thank you. Good to be with you.
2: Yeah, Glenn, we're really excited to to have you here. I mean, uh, you are the CFO for Washington D.C., a city I know and have worked in um, for for a long time. Um, and having been yep. a reporter in D.C. for a number of years before uh, before the freelance world here, um, I know quite a bit about. DC's unusual status in terms of uh, how it operates as a government and the unusual, um, I guess, powers of its CFO. But I think for our listeners, could you enlighten us a little bit on what what makes DC so unique, and particularly coming from your position as a CFO in Seattle, I'd I'd love to hear about what some of the you know kind of the growing pains were.
0: Sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about the district first. Quite simply, it provides virtually all state and local services to its businesses and and visitors and 672,000 residents. And that's from Medicaid to home remodel permits, K through 12 education to fire and EMS services. In addition, we operate a full four year university, a hospital, a stadium complex, a convention center, water sewer systems, so it it again it provides services that uh, are typically provided by a state, a county, a city, and a school district. The governance of the district is is fascinating uh the u s Constitution specifically establishes the uh, District of Columbia and provides Congress the authority to act as the legislature for the district, so that means the um, um congress can determine whether or not they want to govern the district directly or in the certainly in the case in the last 30 or 40 years they've agreed to have an elected mayor and an elected council govern however at any point in time they can enact legislation they being the congress can enact legislation on any topic and also disapprove of legislation or the budget that the city council and the mayor um pass And certainly, most recently, Congress has done Mm -hmm. that. Um, The district is elected leaders have worked for years to to establish uh, criminal justice reforms of all types, from sentencing to different approaches, limitations and expansions of police um, um, activities and so forth. And for a variety of reasons, uh, Congress determined that it was best to step in and, and veto that legislation. And I can't speak to the uh, politics that led to that, but effectively they be- vetoed the legislation. It requires, <clears throat> excuse me, concurrence from the president and President Biden uh, concurred with the repeal. And so um, the district does not have a reformed criminal justice code, which means some codes uh, that were established literally over 100 years ago are still in place. Um, but as I said, this also affects the budget. And so um, uh, this power that the Congress has over the district. And currently the House is deliberating legislation that would remove the ability of the district to uh, deploy automated traffic violation enforcement, basically cameras. And the the district has had several, well over 100 for um, several years now and uh, proposes in the budget to expand that for a variety of reasons. Certainly uh, a key one is public safety issues, and they find that these are relatively uh, effective at at enforcing um, code and compliance with traffic laws. But they also raise money. And if um, Congress and the president choose to um, adjust our budget to prohibit the ability of the district to – provide or have these uh, um, automated traffic cameras, the district will lose about a billion dollars of revenue in the next four years. And that is a material uh, change to the budget, which requires uh, the mayor and the council to re-deliberate the the budget effective immediately. Now, that is a nice transition to the CFO role. CFO role is unlike anything else in the country here. Under federal law, uh, the CFO is responsible for ensuring the the fiscal stability of the jurisdiction. So what does that mean? It means that uh, we have authority to certify whether budgets that the mayor and council enact are balanced and sustainable. So we have an entire apparatus that, that evaluates the budget. If it is not sustainable, then uh, we ask the mayor and council to redeliberate the budget, start over, if you will, and bring a budget to us that appears to be um, sustainable based on our forecasts. We estimate the revenues. And so ultimately, uh, that's the cap of what can be spent over the uh, planning horizon, which is four years. And in this particular case, the congressional case, if Congress uh, exercises its authority and prohibits automatic um, traffic enforcement cameras from being used in the district. That's a billion-dollar reduction in our revenues for the next four years, and that's certainly substantial enough where I'll have to ask the um, mayor and council to to uh, rethink the budget. So that that would be my role to initiate the process of course they make all the policy decisions about what money is spent where what taxes to raise and so forth
2: as i recall the the congressional oversight as part of dc when when it established the cfo position back in the in the 90s um also gave the cfo authority to basically thumbs up or thumbs down any bill that had a fiscal um a fiscal note to it it had to be well. yeah so can you talk a little bit about that cuz i feel like that's one of the most Fiscally responsible, but also very, you know, it gives the CFO a lot of power. Uh,
0: When legislation is proposed, whether it's a budget or just a a uh, change in policy that leads to additional expenses or a revenue reduction or increase, it's our obligation to evaluate it to make sure that that change is sustainable, that it doesn't blow a hole in the budget, if you will. Mm -hmm. And and if it's um, if we find that it reduces our revenue streams um, materially, or certainly more likely increases expenses, then uh, we will not certify the bill as being sustainable and council has to rethink it, uh, working with the mayor's office. Now to make all this happen though, one important point about the position is it's independent. Mm -hmm. While uh, the appointment is selected by the mayor and confirmed by council, it's also passively confirmed by Congress, and once uh, the the incumbent, in my case, me, um, uh, is uh, goes gets through the congressional review, then I have a five-year term, and uh, I'm not subject to termination unless by cause, of course. But I'm not subject to termination by either the council or the mayor's office. Um, So you hit on the reason why does all this exist is we all know the district had severe financial problems by the mid 90s. The federal government acted and invoked a control board, if you will, to run the district, even though there were still elected officials. And um, through the legislation that created the control board created this position. And while the control board has been disbanded because the district had. Four successful fiscal years uh, financially in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, they left the CFO in place with the same responsibilities. They did not reduce that. Congress did not reduce it.
1: And you have a, a unique vantage, having worked now in two cities that have been hit particularly hard by the by the work from home. We talk about it as a as a problem. It's not really a problem. It just it is what it is. F- from your vantage as CFO. You know, what are the, the kind of day-to-day impacts of having fewer people coming downtown? I think sometimes we we have a sense of that, but we're not always clear how that translates into actual revenues, actual spending, actual service demands. You know, so from your, from your vantage coming from Seattle in the midst of the pandemic and now being in DC, what what sorts of fiscal dynamics do we see changing as a result of the of the work from home phenomenon? And then as you look out ahead a little bit and you think about how that phenomenon has evolved you know what do you see as the the challenges and opportunities for dc
0: sure um i like to think about this in terms of the life cycle of a commuter Mm -hmm. to be honest with you and and what does that mean so what does that start with it starts with um, the mechanisms to transport people into the employment center and uh, that's usually involves public uh finance i'm sorry public transit public transit systems And as we've seen around the country, um, the utilization of public transit systems has plummeted to match the fact that fewer people are coming into downtown to work. And for those systems that depend on farebox revenue to support their system, they're in trouble. Um, And um, we can talk about um, our local um, system here um, later if you want, but let me get let you think about how, or describe how I think about the impact. So that's the the first step. How do people get themselves in and out of the, of our downtown areas? The second is after they're here, employees and their employers spend a lot of money on, on whether it's as simple as lunches to supplies, to their operation and so forth. So to the extent you have transfer taxes, sale taxes, Um, which most of us do, we should see a a, a drop-off of of those taxes. And indeed, here in the district, we saw a sharp decline in general sales tax activity as a result of the pandemic. But more importantly, um, having fewer people occupy the buildings means you're going to uh, ultimately have less leases for the buildings or less value to the leases. And that then drives down property values, which then leads to property tax reductions and that's that's certainly a significant issue here in the district uh here the property v- tax revenue is based on the valuation of the property far more directly than in washington state so for uh we are responsible for assessing the value of properties we base it on the income they generate from commercial properties and We're seeing clear reductions in in, uh, revenue generated because leases are being canceled by the commercial spaces in downtown. As a result, we um, um, are seeing a reduction that leads to about $75 million to $100 million a year loss in property tax revenues relative to our peak in 2020. And, of course, 2020 is based on the 2019 occupancy and income levels. Uh, we're particularly concerned about the property tax because right now we're um, our assessments and reporting uh, data that um, commercial property owners have to provide to us indicates that there's about a 15% of the property is unleased. If that were to go to 20%, um um in the next year or two as leases come mature and and people walk out of the leases which anecdotally we're we're hearing that would double this loss
1: wow.
0: you know up to 200 million dollars a year so um we're very very concerned about the uh reduction in value of commercial spaces because they're earning less money they 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 have uh less value because the the leases that they've had for years are expiring and not being uh, renewed or being renewed at a much lower level
2: to give us a sense of the scale of that what's the um, what's the average um, annual property tax revenue for the city
0: our property tax revenue is roughly 2.8 billion dollars 2.9 billion dollars a year Wow. so losing a hundred million um you know that's um in the scale of that total collection, it's not a lot of money, but on the margin, a hundred million dollars of service reduction is difficult for any elected official, whether it's the mayor or council, to to cope with.
2: Um, so we've outlined the problem very well. It sounds like a lot, very similar to what's going on in, in a lot of a lot of cities with a couple of local twists. I hear a lot in in those places about the idea of converting office space to residential and there's a lot of a lot of stuff a lot of extra stuff around that costs incentives um what kinds of policy solutions i guess if any are folks in d c talking about at this point in terms of kind of re restructuring downtown in a more sustainable way now that I think the work from home question has been answered. <laughs> So uh,
0: the mayor um is proposing a set of policy changes that would encourage conversion of office space mm-hmm. um to residential but what i understand um talking to developers and architects i think is commonly described in in the lay press at least is that's extremely difficult because of the, the structural alignment of sewer systems, electrical systems, and whatnot in an office is fundamentally different than what you'd put in for um, a condominium. Also, something to do with interior lighting. Um, Mm. Living environments tend to have a lot more um, walls that are exposed of units to um, the daylight, um, whereas on the way buildings are structured for offices, that's hard to recreate that same footprint and ensure that there's uh, adequate natural lighting into living spaces. Again, all beyond my skill set to understand, but I, I take that as is a reality. Uh, the mayor's uh, proposing a series of tax abatements and, and more than likely different zoning um, options, as well as a handful of grants to encourage the conversion of, of office space to, um, to residential Um, She has a plan that the council's concurred with that uh, has a goal of adding about 60 percent of our uh, residential count into downtown. So in other Hmm. words, currently there's about twenty five thousand people live in the downtown area. They'd like to see um, roughly forty thousand in the next five to ten years. My observation is for all governments. There's only so many buttons we can push. The reality is that there needs to be an enormous amount of private capital come in to market rate to to do conversions for market rate housing. And I'm really interested in and in anecdotally watch how real estate investment uh, trusts and and other vehicles, private equity, and not whatnot are treating this environment right now. It, there's not a lot of money coming in, as you can imagine they're reeling from losses. But um, I'm, I think in the end, that's, that's um, partnership with those kinds of um, private capital um, venues or platforms is what cities in general have to do to facilitate that kind of change. Mm-hmm. Um, that on our own, we're not going to raise taxes enough to completely subsidize um, market rate development or conversion. Um, That that's my opinion. Now, I I I really hope every every uh, proposal that the mayor and council have agreed to is successful. Goodness knows that's very important to our economy. Um, But I I think there's um, the the market hasn't sorted itself out so that the financial markets know what to do Mm -hmm. and whether it's a good bet to put 100 million dollars into an office building to convert it or not.
1: Yeah, those numbers are are just staggering when you stop to think about it. I mean, having lived in the district, albeit briefly 25 years ago, um, very few people actually lived in the district, right? It was just not something you did. You commuted in from Virginia, you commuted in from wherever. So it's, it's amazing just in the last couple of decades, how many people are choosing to treat the DC experience as a residential experience. And now you're talking about ramping that up even further and, and accelerating that trend that's been in place for a while. That's I can't imagine that there's any city in the country that's had that kind of transformation over a couple decades. Uh, but the fact that it's happening certainly suggests that it, it maybe you can continue to make it happen and, and mm-hmm. accelerate it perhaps even a bit.
0: I, I, I again, just anecdotally that the development that allowed that to happen were uh, properties that had very low utilization and were not developed as much. And I, I, It's not a value statement. It's just if you have a row of single uh, rise buildings, it's easier to convert that to now, you know, hundreds and hundreds of eight story Mm -hmm. apartments and condo complexes, which the district has done over the last 20 years. The downtown situation is different because you have an existing 10 to 12 story building that now you have to change. And so the transaction costs to convert it or level it and start over dramatically different. And I think that's really the hallmark change or difference here relative to all the development that occurred in downtown areas around the country during the great urbanization.
1: Uh, At the risk of sounding glib, how good a, a tenant is the federal government? You think about maybe not so much property tax collections, but just the, so the ability to generate revenues from federal government employees coming in and out, many of whom are working from home now, is there any ability to to renegotiate, to kind of redefine that relationship perhaps in a way that, that might stabilize some of that, that uh, revenue fluctuation that you're seeing related to the reconfiguring of where people work?
0: Yes, federal employment's very important. It's well over 25% of, of jobs, about 30% of personal income in the district or federal um, positions. So um, losing tens of thousands of, of um, workers from commuting in every day is very important to the district. The mayor uh, in particular, but the mayor and council have called for the Biden administration to encourage their agencies to bring back more and more uh, folks into the office. To that extent, I believe it was in April um uh, federal authorities directed agencies here in the uh, region to uh, assemble a plan for um for employment patterns and in particular encouraging folks to come back to work um but necessarily that plan requires um federal administrators to balance productivity and outputs with uh, the uh, with having people back into the office, so um, again, I know our our uh, mayor is very vocal about this, and it works with the White House, encouraging them to bring more federal employees back. The Biden administration has responded, but I think it's a long path. Um, so it, there's a couple different ways to think about federal workers federal one has to do with where are they sitting and the second is just coming into the city and spending some income to get our, our, our transit system, fare box revenue increased, buying sandwiches and the supplies and whatnot that the federal government buys that they're not doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, first, in terms of property, if the federal workers are in federal property, we can't per the Constitution, we can't tax it. So that's just straightforward. Um, however, the federal government does lease a lot of private property and has an impact in the private market. Mm-hmm. So to the extent they start reducing their footprint in the private market, which they are, um, that puts ever more downward pressure on uh, the commercial properties in general. Um, so, um, yes, a, a surge back of federal employees will help both sides. It'll help. Hopefully, um, um, strengthen the property market and also bring in a lot of um, spendable cash that is taxed on our sales taxes. via our sales taxes.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, speaking of of transit, uh, we should you know we should definitely talk about that. Uh, the you know, metro is experiencing challenges, as you've kind of alluded to, the same as pretty much every other major transit system in the country right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the the specifics of the challenges that you're experiencing? What do you think the outlook holds? Sure.
0: sure. Well, first I'd like to say that I'm a committed, uh, public transit rider. I've spent my entire career commuting by primarily by bus. Um, so this is personal to me. It's a service I use. Um, the, uh, Regional uh, authority that manages our bus and rail system is um, is called WMATA, and uh, WMATA announced that it has an operating deficit starting in fiscal year 25 of $750 million per year. That's just operating. Um, and I'd like to make sure that folks understand that that begins on J- July 1st, 2024. So less than a year wow. from now, they will have a $750 million a year operating deficit. Uh, that's about 30% of their total operating budget, and um, you know the, the the reasons for that are are, are clear. They're, they're still, um, I believe, less than 50% um, ridership relative to pre-COVID levels, and they depend on um, on commuters and fare box revenue substantially. In addition, uh, well, during the pandemic, a lot of their operations were subsidized by the federal government, as was true of most state and, lo- uh, state and local services around the country. Those resources, of course, are ending uh, at the end of this current fiscal year. Um, in addition, uh, WMATA has um, substantially higher Expenses um, for a variety of reasons. We're at a point now where uh, we have this extremely challenging situation of having to figure out how to manage a 30% reduction in their operating revenue. Um, and again, I'll emphasize that that begins in less than a year. And at this point, there's no plan um, to uh, make up the gap. And and that that in itself is a serious challenge. WMATA is overseen by three different jurisdictions, effectively, the state of Virginia, state of Maryland and the District of Columbia. So any large scale solutions that may include a regional tax, for example, that's a common thought and actually a common practice in other systems uh, requires not one legislature, but three effectively three legislatures and ultimately possibly Congress as the fourth, as our ultimate legislature, to weigh in. Um, and as I mentioned before, this has to be resolved in less than a year, uh, which is quite, quite a, a pull. So um, most, I think it's incumbent on all leadership within the region, uh, including our office, to uh, focus our energy and efforts into finding different kinds of solutions, Certainly, as the central part of the, of the uh, metro system, the WMATA system, we uh, depend on the WMATA system for our economy. But as you all may know, um, and your listeners probably don't, WMATA just extended a train all the way out to Dulles Airport, which is a huge um, economic boom all along the corridor from Dulles Airport all the way into downtown. And so you literally can get off an airplane and take a train uh, very conveniently right to downtown or several uh, large development sites in between uh, the suburbs of northern Virginia, where there's been a lot of growth recently, including <clears throat> excuse me, right here on the Potomac, uh, the the Amazon uh, facility um, that is nearby a station as well. So. Um, I, the the district is is built um the district and the region is built on this system working land use patterns have developed around the system and it's suddenly at threat in a serious way um so um again it it i think is the the immediate challenge uh pre pandemic or i'm sorry post pandemic to the to the area and certainly to the to the district
2: so are this you said there's no uh, plan as of yet. Um, does that mean that WMATA is looking at covering this by service cuts?
0: I don't think there's an um, articulated plan on what those service cuts mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they suggest that because uh, rail is has a lot of fixed costs just to have the system running, whether you run one train an hour or, or seven or eight an hour on a particular line, you have enormous amounts of fixed costs. So um, for them to reduce train service and by just reducing trains, it's not terribly significant savings. Mm -hmm. Leadership is signaling that they want the region to also bring in more revenue. You know, uh, for a $750 million deficit for the district, using current allocations, that could be a $250 to $350 million increase in costs to subsidize w- WMATA. Yeah. Uh, that's on top of a base of the district putting about $800 million a year into the system. Um, that's an enormous ask of our elected officials.
1: You know, the DC government is is a little bit unique relative to certainly any other large city in that you're, as you had mentioned earlier, running a Medicaid program and have health and health care costs hardwired into your spending considerations in a way that maybe most other cities don't. Uh, it seems like on on the one hand, that's, that's kind of one of the big challenges of running a state government without a lot of the resources to run a state government. Is that a fair characterization of the, of the challenge that you face there? Well,
0: in, in terms of the services related to the Medicare program, The district has a unique um, relationship with the federal government such that, as I understand, I'm not an expert in this area, but I understand our federal match is relatively higher than other states. So I'm sure service providers would feel there's never enough resources on the ground, but we have a, a relatively higher contribution rate from the federal government. And it was part of a series of decisions to reorganize the finances of the district in the late 90s. In exchange, the district can't um, tax in any way someone who works in the district but lives out of state, which is a large portion of our workers.
2: Glenn, I remember one of your predecessors, Not Gandhi, was very vocal about that point as well. And uh, in the early to mid-2000s, uh, at a time of great growth for DC, he would he would often point out to his window towards the vibrant downtown and say, sure, but." Half of that I can't tax. So uh, a a challenge, no doubt, for a lot of big city CFOs. Um, Glenn, do you have any any parting thoughts as we as we close out?
0: There's um, no in some way no better time to be a chief financial officer for a large um, urban jurisdiction, whether it's a county or a city. Uh, The challenges we face are enormous, and that's why you're in the business. Hmm. Uh, it's really uh, just an honor beyond words to have this position in particular, um, as you can imagine, because of its unique role, as well as it's the nation's capital, so very pleased to be here.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Glenn Lee, CFO of the District of Columbia for giving us some time today. We really appreciate your insights and thanks as always for uh, your service.
0: Thank you. It's good to be with you today.
2: Wide ranging conversation. there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. Um, some really really big challenges, particularly so around transit. And for this week's rift from the headlines, I wanted to explore that just a little bit more and kind of pull back and talk about um, not just DC but what other cities are dealing with. Um, the story I've, I pulled up is one of the the local um, stories from ABC Seven News in Washington DC that talks about. Uh, WMATA, which stands for the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, uh, or WMATA, um, and and the kind of service cuts that they are contemplating now because of that huge, huge funding gap. It costs, uh, so the city gives us some more numbers on that. It costs around $5 billion to run Metro annually. Um, it leaks money from riders. It loses about $40 million a year from fare evasion and Ridership is still only about half of what it was during the pandemic, and this is that stat. I think is is um, one of the lower, it's on the lower end of of what other transit systems around the country have experienced in terms of riders riders coming back. So the the cuts that WMATA is considering doing, um, it briefed reporters a couple of weeks ago. So they it includes eliminating um, 5,300 workers, which is about. F- Uh, 40% of its workforce, uh, cutting service by two-thirds. I mean, these are, quite frankly, unrealistic cuts. (laughs) Not that I'm a transit expert or anything, but I I don't see how you can keep running a system by cutting that much. Um, And so these are, I mean, that is, it it, to me seems like they're this is what you do politically you you make you say the worst possible outcome just to kind of light a fire under everyone which which clearly it has uh it's glenn was uh was pretty um sp- pretty adamant about that 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 something needs to needs to be done just one more tidbit from that story. Uh, the city, in this fiscal year, is using 670 million dollars in one-time pandemic aid. The next year, it's going to use uh, 560 million, and then that's it. It runs out. And so, uh, Metro officials have said that, um, you know, obviously that something needs to be figured out in the next year, so year or so. And so, um, that's that's the deal with. DC, uh, transit agencies all over the country that are dealing maybe with not numbers this, this extreme, but almost as bad. I think the other transit agency in the country that is suffering, that has, is suffering about as much is the, um, is BART. And again, it's, it's, it's the tech workers. It's the areas with um, a lot of knowledge workers who who don't have to commute in anymore um, or only commute in a certain number of days a week. Uh, Seattle actually is another area where there's a lot of uh, higher percentage of people working from home, but it's just not as as transit reliant as those two, uh, as San Francisco and D.C. Um, even New York City. I mean, New York City's metro uh, metro system, New York City's rail system, uh, is is obviously not recovered, but it's not in as bad a shape as those in in California and in Washington D.C. So, like I said earlier, you know, you you got to say the worst possible outcome, worst possible scenario in order to get people's attention. But what is what's interesting to me is just there clearly there needs to be some new revenue somewhere because you're losing it from fares. If you do service cuts, you're that's that starts the death spiral of fewer people riding transit um in california the legislature has given the transit agencies some of what they've asked for but not i think half is of what they actually needed and and so and which translates to several billion dollars gap still so i mean you can't just print money unless you're congress unless you're the federal government Um, but they did that (laughs) that 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 money's going away now Um, and so you, it's got to come from somewhere and and it does not seem like anybody has figured this out yet so it's just all these really big scary numbers and uh, Justin what are you what are you hearing in the Chicago area as far as transit goes
1: yeah a lot of the same in fact when you is when when you were talking about the service cuts that that WMATA has proposed you know when we teach that we we teach that strategy to our students. We call that the cut the main artery strategy, right? The idea that if you're you're going to do cuts at all, uh, you can make them that much more politically effective by making sure that it's very visible, that people are going to notice it, that users are going to feel that pain. And so that's a great way in some circumstances to really scare elected officials away from those kinds of, of changes, it makes it very real for them very quickly. They hear from constituents and it can be a way to take some of those potential tactics off the tables. So Just like you said, the, the the politics of budgeting very much on display here. I think in Chicago and in lots of other systems that have experienced, like you were saying, stress that's not quite on the level of a of a BART or a, or a Wamata, but still needs to be dealt with. It's not going to go away on its own that seems to be the central question is is in every case there's going to need to be some negotiated solution where there will be some combination of new revenues and spending cuts, or at least new efficiencies that can be put on the table. It'll be mm-hmm. fascinating to see from place to place how much you get of, of both of those. When you talk to a lot of transit officials, they, they speak about it in terms of offering up kind of just enough on the spending side to clear the way for a revenue side solution. And mm-hmm. so the question is, how much of that is going to be on the spending side and what types of, of spending changes will you see, you know, Glenn Lee alluded to this, there's a tremendous fixed cost with operating transit, not just on the capital side, but a lot of pensions, a lot of those fixed labor costs over time. And those are really difficult to, to change. And it's politically very difficult to change. You know, people who are retired say we we did our part, we paid into the system and and now we expect the benefits that we've been promised. Mm. And if you, if you even have the legal authority to go back and change those benefits, it's politically very difficult to do that. So there's not a lot you can do on the spending side without having major effects very quickly, or at least very visible kinds of changes, except for cutting the services themselves. And then as you said, that can very quickly then put you in a situation where you are discouraging people from riding the system, which spirals on itself over time. So that's the challenge, offering up just enough on the spending side to clear the way for a revenue side solution. Every place is gonna to have to strike that balance a little bit differently. It'll be interesting to see what kinds of balances we see uh, emerge all over the country. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build a Muni Pro. Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's munifinance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her Substack Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money. Podcast. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money.